I would like to welcome everyone to the Roxborough Roundtables. My name is Madeline Gerace and I'm the student coordinator for the tables. Today our topic is on why the Jefferson University students are joining the climate strike. Our hosts today are Professor Evan Lane and Hayden, the president of the Jefferson Graduate Sustainability Network. The roundtables will now be heard on the first and third Sundays starting in October on WGGTLP 92.9 Germantown Community Radio. Hi, um, my name is Hayden Remick, and I am the president of the Graduate Sustainability Network here at Jefferson University. Um, today we're talking about why we're getting involved with this global climate strike, uh, which is a crucial thing for all of us to be engaged with. Um, right now, I think we have a lot of young people in the world who are upset about inaction and will stand up and make their voices heard. So that's kind of the basis for our getting involved. So we're going to introduce the panel. Sure. So we're going to introduce this panel. and. Uh, yeah, my name is Tom Shan. I'm an associate dean for general education, and um, I'm uh, working with the, the College of Architecture and Built Environment to coordinate a, a new sustainability and leadership uh, certificate program. I'm Evan Lane. I'm the uh, director of the All Inspector Center, and I'm program director for Law and Society here at Jefferson University. Uh, I'm Corey Jameson. I am an industrial design student, um, but I'm also part of the um, the Sustainable Leadership Certificate. My name is Kian Silvestri. I'm a third year Law Society major. Hi, my name is Rob Fleming. I'm the director of the Sustainable Design Program here at Jefferson. Hi, I'm Kay Wood with 92.9 WGGTLP. And um, this is uh, my first time taking part in this sort of discussion and we sort of what a surprise. <laughs> Hi, my name is Natalie Burgos. I'm a graduate student getting my master's in textile engineering. Okay, well, that's our panel. So um, why don't you tell us um, what's going to be happening on campus and what is its purpose? Okay, so on Thursday, uh, September 26th, we're going to be encouraging students to leave their classes about half an hour early to gather on our quad. Uh, where we'll have a short rally uh, led by the student body. Um, and then we're going to have uh, everyone to move in, inside of the Canbar performance space where we're going to have uh, lots of tables basically designed to help people understand the changes they can make in their own life and how they can affect climate change positively. Um, so we'll have sort of recycling advice. Um, we're going to have a climate uh, a carbon footprint calculator for each individual. So get a better picture of what they can do to improve their own uh, lives and how to make an impact on climate change. I think the big question is, is, is there a crisis? And if there is, what is it? Who feels best to describe it? I'll start with you, Malcolm, and we can go and maybe some other people as well. Well, I would say, uh, yes, there definitely is a crisis. Um, you know, I think a lot of people don't feel the crisis because we have a fairly comfortable way of life here, at least in this country, but around the world, people are certainly feeling the, the pressure from the changing climate. Um, there's people who don't have fresh water, who have to leave their lands because of uh, drought and changes in weather patterns. Um, I think the, the crisis is really just beginning. We're only starting to see the first real signs of what's, what's to come. Uh, I was just going to say, uh, I think one of the things that's uh, preventing us from making effective change is that it's, it's such a slow-moving crisis, and we don't realize that what we're doing right now, the conditions we're creating and living in right now, 
are setting ourselves up for a crisis 30, 40, 50 years from now. If we, we stopped emitting CO2 entirely today, we'd still have a continuing warming climate and the full effects of all the CO2 we put in the atmosphere won't be felt for decades into the future. So we're trying to stop, <laughs> it's really weird, we're trying to stop, we're trying to do something now to stop the crisis 50 years in the future. And I don't think we have the emotional connection to that that would make us act more effectively. I have something to share on that. I heard, this is Natalie, the radio listeners, okay. Um, I heard a really great analogy today for why we should do anything when it feels so helpless and disempowering what kind of changes we can actually make on this huge crisis. Um, if you imagine yourself on the freeway and a car in front of you slams on its brakes, you're not going to not hit the brake pedal. You're definitely not gonna hit the gas pedal. Um, so it's a little ridiculous to think that you wouldn't try to do something to mitigate this possibly impending disaster. When there's definitely steps you can take to mitigate that or possibly even prevent it. Hi, this is Kay Wood for the radio audience, and someone mentioned that this is setting us up for worse effects, but a lot of the effects are here. With Hurricane Dorian uh, sitting in place over the Bahamas for like 50 hours, and here in Philadelphia area, people are already affected by climate change. They're having more asthma attacks. They're having more... Um, heat stress-related illnesses, so it's it's here. Hi, this is Rob Fleming. Um, one of the things that we're discovering is that we are not hardwired to deal with climate change. We are wired to get food here now. That's how we evolved as a species, and that's how we operate on a daily basis. Self-interest is still our primary driver, and so we actually have to retrain our brains and grow new muscles that allow us to think over the long term and to think globally. These are two things that we have never had to do in the history of our species. And to me, that explains a lot. I work a lot with self-interest, and I see it every day. And when you're keen to it, you'll see how self-interest is really the core of the problem that we have right now. Well, I've heard from various different politicians who I prefer not to give the name um, that this is nothing but a conspiracy. That climate change isn't real, that it's something that the left has made up, um, and that we're not facing any crisis. So I'd like for people who have a little more background in this than me to address those allegations. So if indeed this was some type of global conspiracy, um, what's the worst case scenario? Like we fix all of our environmental problems, and we're all better off as a result. I don't see the long game for some type of conspiracy like that. Um, so I think that's probably, I don't know. When I look outside my office, and when it was cold a couple of months ago, this person said in a tweet, there's no climate change, there's no global warming because it's cold in Washington, D.C. Right, right. And I would say to that, that it's impossible for you to see global trends from your backyard depending on the weather on a certain day. This is why scientists are studying this, because it's occurred over you know, a couple hundred years now. So saying it's cold, oh, there's no climate change, or oh, it's, it's you know, a beautiful day, I'm not worried about the future of our environment, is just absurd. 
What is the science on this? Who feels comfortable talking about it? Uh, I, I'm not going to summarize the science because uh, you, know, you could spend a whole semester but I could have a year doing that. Uh, what, what I'll say is that at, at this point, anyone, any serious person in a position of power who's saying that climate change isn't happening is just being willfully ignorant and that they're motivated by some kind of political ideology. There's, there's literally no valid science. And even, even some of the far right people are acknowledging that the climate's changing now, so it's, they've stopped denying that it's changing. Now they're starting to deny that, well, maybe humans aren't causing it. And some even can't say that. They're saying, well, maybe humans aren't causing all of it. So the, the, the level of denial is shifting. The ground is shifting into the denialists as the scientific evidence mounts. Temperature record shows that the, the last 20 years, the hottest years um, in recorded history, and the numbers are rising each year. Uh, I think July or August this year is the hottest month in all record keeping. So if you look at global average temperatures, ocean, atmospheric temperatures, you'll define that. So, so the science is so strong, so consolidated that you can't deny that climate change is happening. Now you start to argue about uh, how much are humans causing, and uh, is it worth the cost of addressing it. So that's, that'll be the next level of debate, is yeah, the climate's changing, we're causing it, we're the problem, but um, you know, how much is it gonna cost, what we have to pay to fix it, and is it worth that? Yeah. So that's, we'll see that as the next ideological battlefield. Mm -hmm. But there's, there's, I mean, <laughs> at this point, there's no, you can't debate the science, and there's no, there's no um, point to trying to hit denial, denialists over the head with it, because it's just not, not gonna ever accept it. So, with that in mind, where I've heard other people say, okay, so the temperature goes up two degrees. Instead of being 74, it's going to be 76. What's the difference? Why does that matter? Who is qualified to answer that question? I can start with that one. Okay. Well, Evan, I would say to you, uh, if you have kids and your kid has a 98 degree temperature, great. But all of a sudden they go to 102 and then you go to 104 degrees, you're probably taking your kid to the doctor. When they hit 105, you're in the hospital and 106, they're dead. So the, the problem that we have right now is that two degrees sounds like not a lot relative to 100 degrees. And yet if you lower the scale from 98 to 106 like a kid would have, it's actually pretty dire right now. Two degrees is a lot. You already have a cold, the planet's already sick. And so um, people see that as a way not to get, not to panic. And people are not going to panic unless they have to, unfortunately. Well, what is the danger? What do you mean danger? There's no danger. It's just the loss of quality of life. I mean, we're gonna, you're gonna have people losing lives in areas of low, low sea level, and then you're gonna have other people who can't get food. So your food prices are gonna go up, and then eventually all this ties into other kind of socio-political issues like climate migration. So there's a big debate right now about whether the Syrian crisis was due to a drought or not. I've read papers on both sides of that. Guatemala is in its number highest level drought in its history, so there's been a lot of migration north. And right now in India, you're seeing really traumatic uh, drought problems. So these end up becoming human problems, but underneath it all is the environmental stress that we all feel and lead to social unrest and eventually to uh, strife. And if I can ask the students, um, grad students here, your fellow students, are they responding to this? Do you feel that they see the same urgency you do, or are they not getting on board? Uh, I think that's one of the big reasons we're having this strike, is to sort of increase our engagement with people on campus. Um, you know, I think many people are aware that climate change is a threat, kind of an existential threat that you don't feel on a daily basis, but 
um, when it comes down to doing something about it, we, as a larger population, have very few tools. So that's part of this strike, is to sort of raise awareness and get people more engaged. Um, yeah. uh, so I have a couple comments about why I find the climate strike is an incredibly powerful movement, since it's so global. Um, I mean, a lot of our event, we're having this outside um, gathering for people to strike using air quotes if they can't hear the air quotes. Um, but our in-store space is to you know, share what people can do in their daily lives. And there's a lot of emphasis on the day-to-day -day actions we can do to reduce our imprint, our impact, excuse me. But bottom line is we need like all hands on deck now. And I think that's an important part about the strike visually um, is it shows what mass mobilization looks like. And there's actually a Harvard study published, I think in 2017, um, that says the percentage of, peop of people, of a population required for uh, like civil disobedience to work is only 3.5%. So in the United States, that's only about 11 million people that need to really fully commit to the pressures that we need to put on our political system, our social system, um, to make drastic change. I mean, change that we've only ever seen, or we haven't really seen since World War II. Um, you know, wars are the only thing that really people, like a whole society, will mobilize for. Um, and if we think of the climate crisis in that same context, not against another country, obviously, but just this immense power we have to combat um, that will take the drastic change that is going to happen into our own hands. Because, I mean, drastic change is going to come. And if we just accept the status quo because we don't feel it in our daily lives, it's, I mean, it's out of our control at that point. Just as again, some of the students, uh, um, Corey, or do you think there's a sense of urgency among people you know or people of your age group? Um, I think it is something that everyone feels, but they don't really know how to address. And, um, like, I, I see it as this sense of awareness, but what can I really do about it? And that's, again, why we're doing this, is we want to bring more tools and more opportunities to, to see areas where you can have an impact. Kian Sylvester here. Um, frankly, I am terrified for my generation and the ability to have children in the future because that's always been something huge on my life. And I think today people are more worried about what's going on with the Kardashians or the most recent TV show. And I don't think there's just enough emphasis on how important this is for the future. In 50 years, will there even be a future? And that's just what scares me. And I think it should be more important to everybody else and more focus on TV, which most people get their information from, or social media to effectively make a change. And I think this walkout's going to help with that. I'm going to be Josh Harmony. I'm part of the Graduate Sustainability Network. Uh, and I, I think I haven't, I've been out of school for 12 years. I just got back into grad school. So my experience is probably a little bit different than some. But I just know from my the old neighborhood I used to live in, which was a very poor neighborhood, nobody there can even afford to think about sustainability. And I think that's a huge problem because they're more worried about 
putting food on the table, right? Like, or they're working two or three jobs just to make sure their kid, you know, goes to school, can be dressed and fed and all these other things. Um, and they can't, they just can't even think about it. They can't think about the future. They're like, right now, I need to feed my kid or pay for daycare or get diapers. Or, um, and I think that's a real disconnect between like college campuses and maybe like what's happening in the city of Philadelphia. So Hayden, what are we, what are we trying to do here? What do we want to do here? Well, um, I guess as an overlying goal, we want to completely change over from fossil fuels. We need to switch to entirely renewable energies. We need to transform basically all sectors of our economy to focus on not destroying our resources. Um, in terms of the strike itself, we really want to connect with the student body and make sure people have the ability to get involved to you know, make positive changes in the world. Um, just to follow up to that, uh, college campuses, our age group, we're pretty much one of the largest um, demographics that can vote in the United States, and we don't. Um, and I think it's really important that we start recognizing our power in that way. And I mean, the best way to feel, to not feel disempowered is to mobilize and feel connected to the people around you. I mean, just in this room, I mean, whether we've met before or haven't, it's always exciting to find strangers that have the same fears or passions that you do about climate crisis or other things. Um, so anyway, just to follow up on that, like, Hi, I'd like to follow up on the last comment. Um, on my radio show, I've interviewed a lot of people. Every single person I've interviewed said the very most important thing you can do is vote. There's also a role for the free market. I don't know if you saw today that Amazon has pledged to buy 100,000 electric vehicles. And the reason why I still talk about free market is because it's faster than government. And as much as we know the government's job is to protect us in the long term, if free market switches and becomes a driver for profit and it goes back to self-interest, sorry, I'm going to look pained by that comment. Uh, but if Amazon all of a sudden actually wants to be carbon neutral and is willing to spend the money on it, then all of a sudden you've got a transformation in a matter of 10 years or 20 years rather than the 50 years that a government might do it. So I don't want to give up on the free market and we buy, we, we, we shape the free market by what we buy and how we purchase things. So. But just um, framing what we're doing here. So what you said is to educate. You want to educate people so they understand what's truly going on. But beyond that, you want to mobilize them. That's what you were saying. Uh, what do you want them to mobilize to do other than vote? I mean, are there specific things if you had a wish list uh, to set forward people in a passionate way? What would they be? Um, I think one of my first goals would be to sort of relate back to what Rob said. It's that the power of our consumer dollar is completely underestimated. A lot of people go into stores and just buy things without actually considering where it came from or the consequences of buying something. Um, so if every individual thought more about what they were buying and where it was coming from and the impact of those products, we could change the economy dramatically through the free market. And I think it would be much more rapid than a governmental transition, which a lot of bureaucracy and takes a lot of time. Uh, 
talking about options, uh, and I like the fact that you're pushing everybody to come up with concrete proposals. Uh, when you are consuming, some occasions you don't have an option. For example, uh, when I buy my lunch, at uh, my sandwich specifically, because it's important at the deli in Canbar, they put it in a plastic box. Why? I have no other option. If I say, uh, give it something else, they say, that's all we have. <coughs> the same thing happens when you go to stores. The other day, and I always shop at, uh, at Whole Foods up in Plymouth Mary, and one, well, not so fine day, uh, at the deli, they start giving us uh, those containers that come from renewable material, and they switch to plastic. This is just eight months ago. And I before I used it, and so when you're taking stuff that is in like a gravy form, you better use the other version which they discontinue. So I went over to the, the counter and said, where are those previous ones that were renewable? I mean, that they were they just decomposed. Compostable. Yeah, compostable, thank you. I was looking for the word. Yeah. Uh, they said, Oh, we identified that there is some health hazard with yes. it and we don't want to be sued, so we went to the plastic one. The money, I mean, free market, I agree, yeah. I want to use that one, but sometimes the free market turns around and bites us, well, you can figure it out. Uh, so the choices, so for the last eight months, uh, and I go there every, like once a week or twice, once every two weeks, I've been very reluctantly, but I have no other option, using the plastic to pick up stuff from the deli. Uh, yeah, that's another option. So in, in places where I can't carry my bags, I carry my bag. But coming back to the options question, if there is no other option, what can consumers do? This brings me back to the question of uh, who should start the process and where. Uh, and I do have some thoughts, but I want to. I don't want to hijack. Oh, so I would. I would like students if they can impress upon the authorities here. I think, I think you had a good point about the um, like when companies switch to plastics. Like, what do you do? And I, I think you can not always, but you can change your own lifestyle in some ways, right? Like, you could um, you could pack a sandwich and you could pack it in a reusable thing, like pack your own lunch, right? Then you then you control all the variables, which again, not always a possibility, but some cases you can, right? You can just make your own sandwich or like. Um, you could choose to ride your bike to some place in your neighborhood versus um, driving if it's nearby or start and build up more more time and more energy. And I, and I think I'd like to um, kind of like hit the point that you don't have to do this overnight. I feel like a lot of people get um, kind of like paralyzed by like, ooh, we have to switch to sustainable. Like, we have to become a vegetarian. We can't turn on our lights. We can only ride bikes. Like. It's not the way it is. Like, like my wife and I are like, okay, we're slowly going to incorporate small things every time. You know, like we probably ate red meat like once, once a week, and then we switched to once a month. We were like, okay, let's just try once a month. Let's see how it goes. We can't do it. We can't do it. And now we don't eat red meat at all, except if we go out. If we're like going out, we want to eat, treat ourselves. It's fine. You know, like it's all about these like small incremental steps to reduce your impact. And I think um, that just seems so much more manageable than uh, what people make it out to be. Uh, I, uh, this is Tom Shane, um, and I, I, I find myself making this point a lot, and I feel badly making it because uh, I admire when people are trying to match their lifestyle with their values, and I think that's important. I think you send, send signals to the market. I think it um, gives you personal satisfaction, it gives some, some uh, moral direction to your life. So I, I think that's great. 
but I'm also um, hesitant to put the full weight of this crisis on individual consumers. I, I just think it's, first of all, it's totally unfair because there's so many huge forces that we can't control that are taking choices away from us and pushing us in certain directions. And when you look at the scale of this climate crisis, we know with pretty much 100% certainty we've got to cut our CO2 emissions, our fossil fuel consumption, or at least the emissions from fossil fuel consumption, uh, to zero, basically by the middle of the century to avoid um, the, the 2%, to avoid going past the 2 degree barrier. Um, so when you think about what, what do individual consumers, what would they have to do to, for the whole global economy to be 0% fossil fuel? You know, the, the 5, 10, 15% of the population that's willing to sacrifice to do that is now we're going to get us close to that. So it's, I just think we need to focus on the large scale. Where, where can we find leverage over the fossil fuel industries, the car companies, the government to make this change happen? Um, and rather than thinking our individual adjustments can, you know, can, can get to I have a question, uh, I guess for Hayden and, and others here. Um, as part of your climate strike, are you asking the institution to divest from fossil fuel investment in their endowment? Um, uh, we haven't asked them yet, but I think that's a great idea. Yeah, a lot of universities have already done that and set that precedent, so I think it's pretty reasonable to expect that we should push for that. So we'll put it on our list of things to do. We have an endowment? Well, we do now. <laughs> um, so just, you talked about the private individual limitations. That's not to say we shouldn't think about it. And uh, Professor Fleming talked about um, different private organizations like Amazon and using our consumer power in steering them. But we're ignoring the 100 or 800 pounds, I think he's up to 800 pounds now, a gorilla in the room, which yesterday or the day before got rid of the Clean Water Act. Mm -hmm. um, and every day, drip by drip, all the protections we have are disappearing. So we are gonna to have to take a stand politically as well. Because if we don't do that, all these things we're trying to do are going to fall. So how do we have a political voice in this? That is another good question. And hopefully in a year, things will look a little different for us. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's one of the main reasons you know, we're having a climate strike for students and for people to get involved. Because if you look at the political situation right now, it's very hopeless. And it can sort of take the air out of anyone's sails if you're trying to do anything good in the world. But you know that's no reason to stop trying. So we've got to figure it out somehow, without, you know, with or without the, the White House involved, and without mobilizing politically. That's the only way you can affect change. Right. So I'm not sure how we're going to go about that just yet. But um, so first, I'd like to say that although you know one side of our political spectrum in the states is, you know, climate deniers are taking away our resources and clean water and making more deals with fossil fuel industry. You could argue, and I'm not saying this is true, that it might be more insidious to recognize climate change and accept the science and still not fight hard enough um, for, you know, your constituents. 
I mean, if we just look at the U.S. alone, if you look at Philadelphia alone, um, I think that there's supposed to be uh, some new, I don't know if it's a national gas plant or something in Germantown. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's ridiculous. This is, I argue, the best <coughs> in Philadelphia. You can fight about it. But it's just beautiful here, and the people in these neighborhoods might not have the time to fight at all, you know? Um, so I think if we just start in Philadelphia and educating students at you know, Jefferson University, Philadelphia University, um, that we have the power in our um, city at least to have you know, a Philadelphia-wide Green New Deal at minimum, and then build connections with other cities and neighborhoods in Pennsylvania, the Northeast. And even New Jersey. And New Jersey, of course, <laughs> let's not forget. Um, Atlantic City. I think it'd be a good time for Hayden to pitch the strike and tell where people where what you're gonna do, where to go, and that type of thing. Sure, so um, on September 26th, uh, this coming Thursday, we uh, are going to be gathering on the quad at uh, Jefferson University in East Falls. Um, we're gonna have a short rally there, and we're asking people to arrive around 11.30 to 11.45. Um, we'll organize there, and um, then we'll have a, an informative room full of different ways, uh, different people explaining how we can all sort of change our own impacts Within the climate and how to improve, you know, not only not only the ecosystems that we live in, but but our own sort of anxieties and responses to how the world is working out right now. Um, so really, it's just a, a way to get involved in your local community and get empowered and, and find a way to make some positive changes in the world. Thank you very much for coming, and I wish you the best of luck. Thank you. I'll see you there. All right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.